Hello, this is Nader. Hello, it's Jeff Hallett and Dave Kleinschmidt, the two half-squads calling. Hello, Nader. You have been waiting for us to call you for how many years, really? <laughs> All of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we appreciate you taking the time from your schedule, which we will say is busy. I mean, from the email that you sent, as it looks like you have a busy schedule, we appreciate you taking time to talk to us tonight about ASL. Yeah. It's a pleasure. And I, and I, of course, have seen your name on endless things throughout the decades, I think, is that would be correct, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a game I've been playing since, you know, the squad leader back in the day. And uh, it's kind of hard not to not to just be the what is it? Zelig, the character who's sort of always in the background. Right. Yes. <laughs> all those all those years. So, yeah. It's, Although uh, there are. There are people who do not participate in any way, which used to be me, I suppose, before the podcast and Hakapali. Mm-hmm. But um, but you seem to jump right in with contributing. Uh, it it kind of happened around us. So you know, in the beginning in Los Angeles, there was a club that kind of met at one of the uh, aerospace companies, and it wasn't really convenient for me. And so I'd, I'd literally play ASL a couple of times a year at a at a larger multi-game convention. And a gentleman from your neck of the woods, uh, Kent Smoke, uh, came out here. And um, at that time, the club was kind of uh, dormant, I would say, or, or at least it seemed that way to me. And he kind of restarted things and, and really uh, lit some fires, if you will. And uh, all of a sudden, it was like, wow, there's, there's this great ASL club, and it's doing its own tournaments and own meetings. And, you know, you had people there like – Rodney Kinney, who went on to create Vassal, and and uh, Mark Newcomb, of course, who did kinetic, ener- kinetic energy, and you just kind of got swept up with it. And so, if you weren't doing anything, it was kind of like you weren't pulling your weight. <laughs> yeah, I was getting all those kinetic energies. I still have them upstairs in the closet. I have to break them out sometime. Go over them on the show. Yeah. yeah. What when was you the think first- about the state of ASL at the time? It, it's really those are really something. Yeah, well, do you think it's changed today, or do you think it's still as productive? I think it's more productive. Um, I think that people have probably moved away somewhat from the degree of SSRs that Mark uh, was known for. Oh, yeah. But, you know, Mark, yeah, he, he really he really went out of his way to get it right as much as he could. So it, uh, I think in my, my sense from having been a, a, a play tester back in those days, uh, it was that it was worth the effort. They were, they were really well-balanced, fun scenarios. Yeah, I played most, uh, I think I'm pretty sure I played close to all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jeff hates special scenario rules, so, and he, does, and he wasn't even around in those days, so. No, I'm still in, I'm still in Neo fight. I've only been in it for 12 years. Yeah. So, got some catch Yeah, up. the, the, the big push for me came probably, um, gosh, I would say in 93-ish, something like that. Um, that was right about when the dots were saying, yeah, you know, we're not going to do this ASL thing anymore. We're going to do a magazine called Girls Life or, or something like that. And that's when we as a community, and I don't mean me, just the club, but, but really the, the wider ASL community said, I don't think so. And all of the fanzines kind of went into high gear and, uh, that's when the first item that I produced uh, came out, which was not a design of my own. It's 
something that's frequently erroneously uh, attributed to me, but it's not my design. It's uh, Brian Abella's uh, Parker's Crossroads, uh, the Barasta Fraser um, project. And uh, that, at the same time, MMP was doing its thing with Backblast Magazine and Critical Hit was doing its thing. And uh, that that's, I'd say, when things really kicked off in terms of the, the art side. I'm not familiar with that product. That's a product, Barack de Fratcher? Yeah, um, it, uh, it, was, it was a company I had for a one-hit wonder because what happened was, again, when we expected that ASL was dying and it was going to be left to the fans to, to keep it alive, um, ultimately what ended up happening was MMP made a deal with, um, at that time, Avalon Hill and then subsequently Hasbro, and their magazine backlash, essentially, they became the ones who now, as you know them, operate uh, the ASL franchise. And when that deal landed, instead of self-producing the Edson's Ridge project, which was my next thing, uh, I ended up selling that to them, and it became Operation Watchtower. But Barack DeFrecher, a.k.a. Parker's Crossroads, was uh, Brian's design that I did the artwork for and published. So it's a battle of the bulge. It's it's a hassle without a campaign game. It's uh, a series of scenarios in a in a uh, single sheet map. Oh, okay. um, and I'm pretty sure I missed that one. Yeah, I've never yeah it was seen re-released your... by Critical Hit briefly, but uh, there was an original version by Frontline Productions, which was my little company for the one project. Yeah, I had missed that. I'm sure. I remember getting into the early heat of battle stuff, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then you also were involved in those. Yeah, uh, again, those guys, uh, Mark uh, Defelson, Steve Defelson and Eddie Zeman were both members of the club as well here in L.A. And, uh, it, you know, once you show any kind of capability for things like artwork, people are like, hey, I've got a project. Can you help me? <laughs> and so uh, that's how that happened. Yeah, I did uh, counter artwork for their uh, Fortress Casino, Berlin Red Vengeance, and the two SS packs where they had the, the black SS before MMP released them with... Uh, a bridge too far. And is that uh, and those, those were very popular? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the Black die cam wasn't up to today's standards, but uh, it was it was evocative of the days that people remembered from you know the squad leader folks remembered from uh, Cross of Iron because that's so, where the the Black SS first showed up. Are you a graphic yeah. artist by trade? Uh, no, I was actually trained as an architect. The uh, the the graphic art part is an uh, outgrowth of that. Okay. And tell me about... Which is uh, why I love maps. Tell me about counter design. That seems to me like... I, And I'm still one of the most ignorant people I know. So it seems to me like counter design would be simple. You throw some, throw a few figures in a square and you're done. But there, apparently there's more to it than that. Well, sure. I guess it kind of depends on, on what your goals are, right? So there's, on the one hand... As we've seen, and if you go back and look at some like old SPI counters and how how bare and spare they were, it's because there was a limit to what the printer could do, and there was a limit to what the die cutter could do, and the artists had to work within those limits. And in both cases now, uh, there are better printing machines and better die cutters, and so you can uh, you can do a lot more than you could do before. Um, But obviously, with ASL, there's a there's a tradition. I suppose that we maintain with what would be considered kind of a substandard uh, in terms of uh, how much color, how much detail, uh, but it still works. Um, I mean, certainly the LFT and the uh, broken ground counters are all very pretty, 
uh, and they work too. Uh, it's it's a matter of of taste. But mostly, what you're looking for is exactly what you said. You know, you have your art, you have your information that you need to put on it, and you got to lay it down in a way that if the die cutter misses by a little bit, it's not ruined. And so there's a unseen buffer around the art. Okay, I see. And uh, besides just counter art, you did uh, map design as well? Yeah, so I, I drew the map for the Parker's Crossroads thing, um, and I drew a map for Edson's Ridge when I was going to publish it, but then, of course, they hired uh, Charlie to do the, the uh, production map. Um, I've since done other playtest maps for people like uh, the Dinant map for uh, Dan Dolan on his upcoming HASL project. Yeah. Um, helping a couple of other guys with their HASL projects. And of course I have, you know, half a dozen of my own. That's a very nice map. Uh, Dan Dolan's uh, Dinant project. Oh, thank you. I think that and so, to, Dave, that went to your house, didn't it? I think you've got that. Uh, currently. Yeah. You used to have it up on your wall. Yeah. Yeah, um, beautiful. I have it here, but the, um, the Edson's Ridge map, then that's the one that's the historical one that goes with the watchtower set. That, and correct. that was your your design? Right, but the, the production art was done by Charlie Kidler. Yeah, but that means, so like, did you also work on all the scenarios to go with it? Half of them. Eight oh, of the okay. 16 are my scenarios, yeah. And the, and the campaign game is mine. Okay. Yeah, see, Jeff, I told you I saw his name all over the yeah. place. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> um, that's amazing. Uh, how, how much time did you put into that, or was that your, one of your first interests, or? Uh, actually, that was the second one of the ones that I looked at. The first one I'm still kind of working on, and it might turn into something with uh, with one of the uh, magazine producers, like Bounding Fire. It was a, another fight in the South Pacific at a place called Buna. Um, mm. But. You know, I, the the problem I have is I like reading military history, and as you're reading it, you can all you say to yourself, "Gee, that could be a campaign game." <laughs> yeah, and that turns into five more books on the subject, and and next thing you know, you got a map in the works, and then it's the hard part of oh, how do you make a scenario, and how do you balance it, and how do you convince people to play test it? So, lots yeah, of projects things, partway through. These things can go on for years. How long did you work on the uh, Edson's Ridge deal? That's a good question. Probably that was probably faster because you, you talk about how things have changed for whatever reason, it was easier in those days to get people to play test stuff than it is today. Mm. Um, and I would say Edson's Ridge before we gave it to MMP, probably a couple of years, not that long, mm. not, not like, you know, 10 or 15 years, like some of these projects that people talk about. Yeah. I know the Denand project has been going on for a while as well. But other than the map for that, did you do any other work with Dan on that project? No, no, that was that was his baby. Uh, okay. Carl Noguera did the uh, campaign game, and Dan did all the uh, scenarios. In fact, I can tell you, I think, when that started. Uh, yeah, 2012 was when we first acquired. Okay. The end of 2012, yeah. so seven years ago. Or eight, oh, I guess my eight. gosh. Yeah, I, I was thinking, oh, man, you said 2012, and I thought, oh, that's only been a couple of years. No, seven years. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Time flies. Time yeah. flies, Jeff. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I feel like I just got out of a time machine. Mm -hmm. and, now, uh, the, 
So what else? Are you are working on other projects? I'm, you must have other stuff going on right now. Huh? Uh, sure. Um, on the ASL side, like I said, I've got a, a number of different projects, uh, you know, PTO, ETO, some stuff in North Africa or Italy, um, all moving slowly forward, uh, just more miss when I have time. Um, I do uh, to to just help out and give back proofreading for for MMP and Bounding Fire and do some playtesting for them when I have time. Um, then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm helping some other guys with their HIS home maps uh, just so they can get closer to getting their projects into production. And that's uh, PTO stuff, some Korea stuff. Obviously, I can't give details since they're on my projects, but uh, right. yeah. Yeah, and then uh, I do counter artwork for decision games, obviously not ASL, and I've done a bunch of magazine games and some box games and folios and things like that for them. Wow, that must really... You don't have any other hobbies then, really, do you? <laughs> um, I, I suppose not. I mean, it's... Uh, I wouldn't think so. I guess it's... I Yeah, I guess it's, you know, it's enough. Yeah, right. Yeah, you still have to have time to sleep and talk to friends, etc. And, and stay married, you know that kind and of thing. Stay married, right? Oh yeah, I always forget about that one. <laughs> so you uh, do you talk to the guys at MMP uh, fairly regularly then? Uh, not too much, uh, you know. Primarily just emailing with uh, with Chaz. Uh, when something needs my attention, uh, and then otherwise, you know, chatting with Perry at the uh, couple of ass locks that I've been to. But other than that, no, not really. Because we'd like to know, and you probably know this, Dave wants to know, what does Perry think of Dave? <laughs> I do not care. <laughs> well, there was I'm... that little wallet photo that I saw him looking at that could yeah. have been Dave. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we always wonder how, how often Perry thinks of us. Our ears are never burning. It's funny. Right? We talk about MFP, our ears are never burning. Are other parts burning? You know, you could see a doctor about that. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. well, I, I have. Yes, I have. <laughs> So um, for decision games, that's interesting because they've got a huge catalog of things. Do you stick uh, for decision games? Do you stick with the World War II stuff for them? Uh, no, I've done all kinds of stuff for them from oh. ancients to modern to World War II. It all depends on the on the project. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're, they're prolific publishers. There's always, always something are, going yeah. on. They, and they work very far in advance. The, the stuff I'm working on for them now has got 2020 publishing dates on it. So and, uh, they, is they, it they work way in advance. Is it Decision Games that's been republishing the uh, SPI stuff? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, they bought the license to a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And so things that didn't revert to the uh, designers revert are, are theirs. Okay. Interesting. <clears throat> and do they call you when they've got a project? or? Um, like yeah, it actually, you know, the, there was a friend of mine who, <laughs> um, when I was getting back into things and uh, – was talking to Bounding Fire about uh, possibly producing one of my HASLs. The the flip side of that was, hey, help us play test. And so I was looking for somebody in the club as I was getting back into it to help me play test. And there was this retired fellow who lived only 20 minutes away from me. And uh, so we started playing very, very regularly. And he, um, he had a whole room devoted to ASL in his house where he called it his bunker. And, um, as we were playing, he had little counters from other games that he was using for things in ASL, uh, different kinds of markers and things. And I said, you know, I can, I can make those. 
And this was before I had done anything for Decision Games. And one of his good friends worked for Decision Games. And after he saw what I was able to do with the computer, he said to that guy, you know, you should ask him to do some counters. And so he did. And one thing led to another. And, you know, I think I've got like 40 different projects under my belt with him so far. Wow. That's that's very impressive. And then are you paid for all your work that you've done, even with the third party stuff? And um, Well, I mean, certainly with decision games, yes, that's a that's a formal uh, business relationship. So I get paid by project. With the HASLs um, that I've done, it, it's either through selling the HASL or, or things like that, um, where I'm helping friends with maps and things like that. I might, I might not. It's you know, it goes back to what you said about it being a hobby. So. Yeah, right. Because I'm looking at, I just broke out your map on the Guadalcanal. Well, even though the other artists did it, but. And comparing it to historical maps, and it's just, it is fascinating to me. And it looks, you know, really accurate and like a lot of fun. If I can, and I share, the what? If I can share something about, if I can share something about that, there's oh, a, yeah. a really interesting aspect of that. So I was, uh, when I was doing my research um, for the map, there was a U.S. Marine Corps Historical Museum in Washington, D.C. And I was trying to get... Um, material from them on the battle, you know, after action reports and things like that. This is during the days before everything was scanned in on the internet. And there was an old World War II veteran who'd actually been on Guadalcanal, who wow. was the, uh, the public liaison. And one of the things that always struck me as odd about the, the maps that you saw, even in the official histories, was it looked like the Raiders collapsed pretty far back on the right as you're in the Marine positions facing out into the jungle, but the paramarines didn't collapse that far back on the left, but the it left. was hard to tell why it, it, it looked like jungle. It looked like jungle. And it wasn't until I got a map from that guy that the Japanese had used in the modern era to go recover war dead, right? Because it's a big deal in, in their religion to, to try and recover the war dead so that they can be buried and, and ancestry can be, you know, a continuum can be maintained. Right. And that that map showed the big hill or spur that goes off to the left. So it suddenly became clear that the reason why the Japanese failed to make so much progress on the left was because they were climbing up a hill in jungle into the teeth of defenders. And uh, so in game terms, they were CX every turn and, you know, things like that. It was it was a really neat thing to to have that question answered by material that was in the Marine Corps uh, archives. Yeah. The other, the other thing that was fun that that came out of that effort and dealing with that gentleman was something that again is mentioned nowhere in the official histories In the official histories, the Japanese are attacking with machine guns and, and rifles and grenades and maybe the 50 millimeter mortars, but the intelligence reports that they had where they are, are discussing what happened after the battle um, they found one of those 70 millimeter infantry guns that these poor bastards had carried through the jungle for miles. And, ne- and next to the gun in the dirt were four or five rounds that had a dimple in the uh, primer and had all failed to detonate. Oh. So these guys had a, they had a 70 millimeter gun on the higher hill looking at the Marines and couldn't use it. They oh, wow. basically rolled boxcars on their first shot and then a six on the repair roll. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ouch. 
Yeah. So you can tell I love the research part. That's that's a lot of fun. That's yeah. a hobby in and of itself. And that must be really satisfying to take take some uh, detailed historical accounting and then try to make a scenario. And obviously, I, I've always been really interested by that um, mm -hmm. because you can't do obviously exactly what happened in real life. You, it, you've got to come up with a balanced scenario. How do you does, do? You ever have a problem with that, like uh, introducing? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. What you don't do is introduce things that weren't there, right? So in the sense, you don't say, well, gosh, they could use a tiger tank. Let's give them a tiger tank. Yeah. Uh, where, where you tend to make the adjustments is in the victory conditions or the turn length, things like that. Oh, okay. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever been involved in projects, um, taken over a project from somebody else that was just bungling it or couldn't handle it? No, not yet. Okay. Um, well, that's good. Yeah. yeah, kind of amazing. How about uh, have you ever turned down a project that somebody came to you and said, you know, we'd like you to do this and just didn't want to? Uh, have, I haven't found that one yet either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So is there any, you know, given that, is there any part of World War II history that you're not particularly interested in? Is there stuff like you just like? I'm not going to read about what happened in uh, Burma and Siam and stuff like that. You know, just parts you're not interested in. Or are you pretty much all over it? Um, in terms of my own interests, I I am definitely um, a Western Front snob. Um, I prefer, even though I, I have PTO projects that I'm working on, I I'm not sure what it is. Maybe the movies and TV shows we saw as children, but for whatever reason, I identify mostly with, uh, with Normandy and the, the latter stages of the war, the, the war as it was fought in Italy. But, you know, when it comes to something like ASL, I'll play almost anything. It's, it's really just where, you know, if you go up and look at my library versus, you know, the, the war, it's, you're going to see a, a, a dominance of, of Western front. Yeah. And what, what were your influences? What got you interested in World War II? You know, I don't know. I've, I've always had an interest in it. I mean, I can remember doing those shoebox dioramas as a kid based on, you know, picture books from World War II. I honestly couldn't tell you what, what led to it. I had several uncles who were in the Marine Corps and, you know, uh, things, one who was in the Army. So there was a lot of um, sort of background influence but nobody was saying hey you know read this kid it was just that's that's what ended up appealing to me yeah, yeah i think i think for me i did a lot of those airfix miniatures and sure. made little the dioramas and i didn't mm -hmm. know much about the wars so whatever the box art was became kind of my my historical study and yeah no, that's just, exactly right yeah and then um and I, I kind of liked them all equally. I knew I didn't like the colonial, you know, Revolutionary War stuff as much as the figures who were World War One or Two. And then, uh, then I got into the um, gaming. Really, I think it, I would have to say Advanced Squad Leader pushed me to become, to, well, to read the sixty books on World War Two that I've read. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, totally. I said, wow, I got to learn more about all this because this game is, is kind of fun and my friend's making me learn this game. Oh. Yeah, all my right. first real war game was uh, a game that Avalon Hill produced called Tobruk, which is kind of 
similar to ASL in scale, but uh, more, you know, more dice rolling, which is kind of hard to imagine. But <laughs> is, uh, yeah. ASL or squad leader, the original squad leader followed soon thereafter. And, and I was one of those guys who was like DYOing everything and just having fun as a, as a kid when it was a sandbox. Um, and once, once the expansions came along and you could do more than just Germans versus Russians, I, I was in head over heels. Yeah, I think for me it was, uh, I didn't do that much modeling, but my dad had been in the war in this, in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I think my love of combat, the TV show, really mm-hmm. got yep. my interest going. But I never really found anybody. I, I, I skipped all the early days of Avalon Hill and stuff because never really found anybody else that was uh, interested in it. So that's why it sort of languished in the back of my mind until whatever it was, 12 years ago. Maybe it was 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of... It was actually stuff. that... A lot of catching up to do. It was that very sentiment that you just mentioned that led to me uh, starting the Google map for ASL players. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. So it goes back to um, I was uh, raising small children and had a wife who was very unsympathetic about gaming. (laughs) So, you know, all day to go play ASL? No, I don't think so. And so when Rodney came along and created Vassal, it was like the heavens opened up and angels sang. You know, you could do ASL and play by email and the dark of the night, it didn't matter. You, you know, send your turn and, hey, look, you're playing ASL. And that was great for me for a very long time while my kids were small. And then that playtest uh, requirement or opportunity came along from uh, Bounty Fire. And when I was playing as much as twice a week with that fellow who lived close by, I saw what a joy you know, regular face-to-face play was. And I just felt like, gosh, we as a community need to do a better job of finding one another so that, you know, more of us can do face-to-face versus Vassal. I'm not knocking Vassal. I'm just saying that face-to-face is definitely better. And so I had, uh, knowledge of how Google does those maps from another uh, group that I was involved with has nothing to do with gaming and uh, said, Hey, let's, let's try this. And I think within the first month we had a couple of hundred pins. And as of today, there's 1120 and uh, we get new people every week, you know, all over the world. Yeah. That's amazing. And actually there was a whole, there was a whole club that formed in Tennessee because of the map, you know, they didn't even know about each other and they were close enough to form a club. We are very blessed to be here in this area where we do have gamers all around and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. several of the clubs, of course, the Chicago guys. And then I started up and I think my original ad was in, must have been one of the last issues of the annual Mm -hmm. and started contacting. And when we started this podcast, of course, people, you know, 40 minutes away, suddenly, you know, wanted to meet us and started to come over. We had a guy just kind of move into the area, too, because of this concentration of gamers. So it's a great thing to have the face-to-face. Yeah, it really is. And you still have a very active group out there in Los Angeles? Because we've seen kind of groups, well, in the Chicago area, it's kind of come and gone. Um, you know, there used to be a very active group from, seems like, from all over the city. 
and the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And now they've sort of fragmented and people don't travel as far as they used to. And so we don't see the guys that are playing way down in the south suburbs except at tournaments. And is it like that around Los Angeles? I mean, that's another area that's very spread out. Sure. And uh, the the club president, Jim Akins, organized the club meetings with that in mind, which is to say that uh, each the club meets four or five, depending on how many weekends there are in a month, uh, times a, uh, per month. But each of those meetings is in a different location. We have different game stores that we'll meet at, and those are spread around to try and make it easier for people who are at the perimeter. Um, but it's we don't usually see the San Diego San Diego contingent until our our uh, tournament, which is coming up in uh, February. Oh, and what is what tournament is that? That's the uh, West Coast Melee, uh, which is our yeah. club's uh, tournament. That is actually I'll tell you the dates here. Just... We'll promote it. Yeah, yeah, might was uh, it starts I think Thursday uh, the 21st and runs through Sunday the 24th of February. Oh, wonderful. And how many people usually attend that? Um I think it's I'm I'm the wrong guy to ask. That would be oh, Jim. Okay. I I think it's like 70 people something oh, like that. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good time. And I like the idea of having the game a, a game going every week at different locations. Now here Dave, I'm mm -hmm. trying to think of what other game stores there are around the Chicago area where you could play SL on a weekend. Not okay. many anymore. There was yeah. uh, the – I don't know if Waukegan still got one, but Charlie, of course, passed away, and that closed up, you know. Yeah. So really, Games Plus does run uh, game clubs there. Right. And that's the only one I know of in the Chicago area that does war games. I mean, I, I know there are some uh, stores around that do – like uh, Magic the Gathering and stuff like that, but yep. don't know any That's other war gamers. So, yeah. So right now there's kind of a lull in the in the Chicago area gamers. That mm -hmm. there's been talk of trying to whip it back into shape, but nobody's stepped up to do that yet. Yeah. Well, hopefully you'll get your own version of another uh, Chicagoan in the form of like we had Kent Smoke, who came in here and rattled our cages and got it all back online. Yeah. And did you ever talk to any of the guys yeah. that used to run the thing out here, Louis Tokars and uh, Jeff Thompson and some of those other guys that were really active in the Chicago, the Windy City Gamers, they were called back in the day? Yeah, I, I personally have not, but I'm sure members of the club have. Because I'm, I'm, there are a lot of the guys in our club who do a lot more traveling and going around to tournaments like like the ones in Chicago and whatnot that, yeah. uh, that I just never did. Yeah. Have you ever done one of the faraway locations like uh, – you know the what's the one in Manila? Mayhem in Manila. <laughs> Let's pick that <laughs> I one. wish that would be great. Yeah. Um, now the only uh, the long, farthest one I've gone to is uh, Aslock. I went last year and uh, actually, well, I should say I went 2017 and 2018. So oh, okay. Now that we're in 2019, Are hopefully I get to go again this year. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. We may we may end up there. We Dave and I haven't really talked about it, but. We haven't been for a few years, so that may happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went thinking it was going to be a one-off thing, but I had so much fun, I went back again. <laughs> and how did you do it? Because uh, one thing I like about ASLOC is there's so many different ways to play. You can play in the tournament, or you can – I know guys that go there, they actually don't live that far apart. <coughs> they'll go mm -hmm. to ASLOC and uh, play a campaign game. Yep, I saw some guys doing that in 2017 with the uh, – the St. Nazaire 
uh, HASL that uh, LFT put out. Um, and in fact, there was some talk oh, yeah. now about somebody doing that at uh, at our convention. Some guys are saying that they they got a pass from their wives for the whole weekend, and so they wanted to, to spend the whole time doing a campaign game. Um, yeah, yeah. I I am not just so we're all clear. I am not one of those ace players. <laughs> so if I go five and five, I'm a happy camper. Um, but uh, it. It, I, I, that's what I did this last time in 2017. I don't remember if I actually had a winning record or not. Um, I could look, but it might depress me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have no reason to be ashamed with all of the stuff that you've got going on and everything that you've contributed to the hobby. I would think that winning a tournament would uh, not be particularly, uh, you know, something that you have to strive after. Now, I, I look forward to just the, the social part of it, meeting people. You know, Don Petros here at our local convention is always fun to, to see what he's working on map-wise and meeting people like, you know, Mark Pickavage and Steve Pleva and J.R. Tracy and, you know, getting run over by J.R. Van Mechelen and uh, Mike McGrath. <laughs> it's it's the social side, not the not the, the, the gaming side that I'm that I'm after. Yeah, right. Um Okay, well, Dave, do you have any other topics you want to cover? Um, well, I'm looking through the email list. Why don't we uh, – yeah, Nader, if you just want to go ahead and just tell us everything else. Like, I think your stories about your research were fascinating too. So you want to just well, take it away. And, and listeners love hearing all this stuff. Sure. I, I will tell you – Again, we all come at things differently, right? So there are some people who want to play games because it's a game. It can be in space. It can be ancients. It can be World War II. They don't care. It's the game. There are others of us who are like, no, it's got to be World War II. That's my thing. Or it's got to be, you know, whatever era they're into. And one of the more fascinating and rewarding aspects of my interest in World War II was going to the National Archives. It's called Archives II in College Park, Maryland. And you, you go through a little orientation to, so they teach you how to handle the records so you don't destroy things or damage things. And they help you find whatever it is that you're looking for if they have it. And they have a whole floor devoted. You, you, you are in just a little workroom. You're not in the, in the archives themselves. They do that. Uh, but you're in this room, and there's a whole floor devoted to what they call textual records, which is like operation reports and after-action reports and intelligence reports, you name it, all that stuff. There's another floor devoted all to maps. There's another floor devoted all to photographs. And you walk in with your requirement, and these people help you find your stuff. But <clears throat> especially lately, we all have become accustomed to looking at things online. I have a PDF of this document. I have a copy of that document. But when you're in the archives, you're holding the actual piece of paper. You're holding the actual map. Uh, and it takes you back in a way that reading about it or looking at it online doesn't do. Mm. And the, the example I always give as I was uh, doing research on a Marine Corps battle and the commander wrote his notes on captured Japanese accounting paper. And there you are si sitting in the archives holding this piece of paper and looking at his handwriting. And sure, you can look at it just from the perspective of what's the data, what's the information on this piece of paper, but then you can look at it and go, 
this is the same piece of paper yeah. that he was holding. <laughs> yeah, you that's know? what <laughs> And I, I encourage everybody to go to the archives if you're there, because as an American citizen, actually even as a non-citizen, you can get in there and do the research and and look at these documents, look at the radio reports, looking at all that stuff, and it's just it's a wonderful experience. Yeah, that I would really love. I, I remember being in the classroom. I think I told the story once on the air, and a student said, "Oh, my uh, grandpa was in the war and at Iwo, and you know, I have a tape recording interview. This is back in the right cassette tape day, right?" And so I mm-hmm. said, "Yeah, I'd love to hear that." And they brought that in. And as he was describing it, I said it was like in the third wave coming in, and I'm looking at the pictures on my wall in my classroom of Iwo realizing mm-hmm. he's right in one of these boats right here mm-hmm. that you're you looking know? at yeah. yeah that i'm looking at and he's talking to me mm-hmm. now through this tape recorded cassette mm-hmm. and so yeah, yeah it's amazing love love that aspect of history and it's fun when i teach if the kids can get into my my friend co-worker brought in his great-grandfathers or his his grandfathers he's an older guy um mm-hmm. diaries from world war one Wow. And then, so we got to pass some artifacts and it has captured German binoculars from World War One. Um, and when the kids really relish it and respect it, of course, I really enjoy it. Of and when they kind of go, blah, I just feel sorry for them. Like, how mm-hmm. can I help you to understand that, that this is so cool? I mean, <laughs> it's just a hard mm-hmm. thing to do. I, my wife yeah. has grown to appreciate history having lived with me and, and done some battlefield tours and various museums. And I think now she appreciates that much more than when she was younger. Um, I don't know if age has something to do with it, but I have a lot of young eighth, eighth graders that can understand, wow, this is actually, you know, from there. And, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it means a lot. Yeah, my, my wife tolerated one all day private tour in Normandy. And after that, she was like, yeah, never again. <laughs> oh, why is that? Was it too uh, emotional? She said that the tour guide and I were describing the battle minute by minute, which oh. was just a little bit more than she could handle. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right. Well, and with my wife, we kept the battlefield tours to, to under like three hours, I think was a compromise at, at Antietam, which by the way, Jeff, mm-hmm. um, well, and Nader, if you want, um, my friend and I, from church are trying to go to do the Civil War fields, do a couple of different tour vacations. So, oh yeah, I'd love to. I'd love, if you're inviting yeah. me, yes, I'd love to do. If you could get away, Jeff, it would be the guys, you know. Yeah. And we would. So I'll, I'll put you in on the email, Jeff. Great. Super. And Andrew, if you want to come too, you can. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Actually, the Civil War is an area that uh, I need to to focus more on. And then those could be really long days on the battlefield. He and I were talking about it at lunch this week, saying, yeah, we won't have to rush. We can just sit and meditate and let the sun set, you know, on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a really cool experience I had years ago when I was in Washington for work was taking uh, time on the weekend to go to Gettysburg and walking the battlefield and, and specifically walking Longstreet's uh, charge, you know, that, that distance. And yeah, understanding yeah. what those guys what those guys went through, right? Actually taking the time to walk it, right? Mm-hmm. No, it really makes a difference. 
I'm just curious, uh, Natter, if you had a chance to see Peter Jackson's uh, documentary that came out just for two days in December. Uh, yes, called... I did. It was phenomenal. Yeah. It was phenomenal. I saw it as well and was really impressed by it. Yeah. And who, who, who can't appreciate the fact that the guy had all the uniforms and the World War One artillery <laughs> yes. in his collection? Yes. Uh, right. No, it was it was amazing. It was amazing what they did. And going back to what Dave was just saying about history, I mean, I think that that level of restoration of that material enlivens it and makes it more approachable to people, especially in a digital era where we're accustomed to what movies look like, what TV looks like and having it where they're moving correctly and, and doing the, what is it called? Foley work where it sounds right. And, yes. and so forth. I think that, I think that makes it more consumable for people of today to, uh, to see it that way. Yeah. As opposed to it just being a gimmick. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the conversation we had at school is, you know, there's some beauty to the old films that jump and are scratched. But if I want to hook the kids in and that's authentic mm -hmm. footage, I have no mm -hmm. problem with it being upgraded a bit. Yep. For a modern audience of kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you have any other um, trips planned to the uh, National Archive or any other places to do research? Uh, no, my last two trips were actually battlefield walks, um, one in Normandy and one in Italy. But uh, as I said, my wife is, I think my wife is looking for some payback at this point. So I think uh -huh. our next few trips are going to be for fun. <laughs> okay. Venice. Yeah, my my trip concession is we're doing um, a kind of partial mission thing uh, over to Greece instead of oh, just wow. – like a vacate, like I've always picked hiking the Rockies or doing Ireland with the family, uh -huh. and mixing some history in. Um, and so this year well, I totally gave it over to her. She picked, yeah, we're doing a mission trip in Greece, so <laughs> get ready for that. So and, uh, yeah, so you need to be like, yeah, there's this place called Crete. Can we go there? <laughs> yes. Now we are going to be able to tack on days on the uh -huh. back end, so we could do. I'm planning to do the, of course, the ancient, you know, Acropolis, sure. everything. There's going to be so much to try and cram in oh, those yeah. days, as well as like journeys of Paul stuff. So I figure that'll go with some of the mission stuff, but because mm -hmm. they're just on so many levels in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, you'll have a great time. It's hard to go wrong over there. I'm always surprised uh, about the number of places all around the United States, all around the world, I guess, where you can find, you stumble upon World War II related monuments and dedications and the national things mm -hmm. and you know just uh, I was so amazed that the National Churchill Museum you know is in Fulton Missouri and just just about anywhere you go you know you can find mm -hmm. something about World War II there's a Pritzker Military Museum in Chicago and there's mm -hmm. uh, the the U-boat there's a captured U-boat at the Museum of Science and Industry what is there on the yeah. west coast what kind of west coast stuff is there to see uh, in San Diego, they have um, a carrier that's name is escaping me right now. Gosh. Um, I want to say the Hornet, but of course that's not it. Um, I can't think of the name. There's a, there's a World War II era carrier that was upgraded and moved into the, the later era um, that's now a museum full of aircraft. That's really cool. Um, 
there's the USS Iowa, the battleship that's here in San Pedro, which is a suburb, or it's actually a part of Los Angeles. Um, trying to think what else would qualify as World War II. Uh, peripherally, of course, the Museum of Tolerance, which talks about the whole unhappy side of that. Mm, uh, yeah. Uh, without being specifically military related. Um, not really sure. I, I would say, you know, when you mentioned it, the first thing that came to my mind wasn't a museum. It was the uh, very large veterans cemetery that I drive by every day. That uh, is a constant reminder of, of mm. those conflicts. Mm. Um, yeah. But going back, by the way, to something you mentioned a moment ago, Pritzker, uh, they have a fantastic series of podcasts uh, that are really well worth the time to, to listen to, particularly when they're interviewing the Medal of Honor winners who describe, you know, what they what they went through. It's really, uh, really very, very good. I have listened to yeah. a few of those, and I actually went down and sat in on one of their presentations oh, that they had that. with the yeah. author. Let's see, it was the author who finished up Manchester's um, Churchill um, mm -hmm. biography. Can't remember the author's name, but anyway, yeah, it's a great, uh, great resource. The Pritzker podcast. I know there's, they're all out there for free download. Yeah, we've recommended that early on in our series yeah. um, podcast, but I have the feed it dropped from my phone, so I'm gonna have to put it back on, and I forgot about it. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really wonderful. It would definitely be something I would make use of if I were in your neck of the woods. Okay, well, we're at... Uh, I'd like to ask just a little bit about the game production part. So you do your artwork. What kind of program do you use, can I ask? Sure. I use a program called Adobe Illustrator, which is a what's called a vector art uh, program. Uh, it's different from Photoshop, but it's the same uh, company. So it's still Adobe, but uh, Photoshop is uh, what's called raster. And uh, the difference between raster and vector is that if I take a vector image and blow it up or shrink it, it doesn't change the um, resolution. Oh. But if you take a raster image and blow it up or shrink it, you can have uh, pixelization or other problems. So it, it makes it easier to, for example, do the artwork large and then shrink it down uh, so that it, you get a lot of detail without having to draw at a very small level. And those, those can handle the production of the big maps, too, and everything, right? Absolutely, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Sized because I do have one game I'm going to try to publish here uh, as mm -hmm. I retire, and I just don't. I think mm -hmm. I like to experiment around with doing a lot of the art myself, some of it. But mm -hmm. you know, in the end, I don't carry the weight. But it, it would be interesting to try and get into some other things. Um, sure. If, you, if you're looking for yeah, if you're looking for pointers and things like that, I'd be happy to walk you through how stuff works. Okay, I think that's what I was looking for also. <laughs> so thank sure. you for. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Yeah, anything else? Anybody? Uh, I can't I can think, think of it. anything else, Natter, unless you would have something that you would like to speak to a little before we wrap up. We've got time. Uh, nothing comes to mind. Okay. okay. Yeah, I'm good. Um, very, very good talking to you. Absolutely. Yeah, my pleasure, I love, guys. Again, these are all names I see all the time, and <laughs> so I'm always like, Oh, who's the, I wonder who that guy is, you know, and what mm -hmm. they do. 
I'm sure. Yeah, sometimes there's an advantage to being old. <laughs> You've been around a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, those early products I had, I'm just re-looking at your list. I had sold my Fortress Casino on eBay, which I actually regret. And that Hill 112, I still have that in the to-play box that I never got to. Mm -hmm. I played mm -hmm. all the Fuhrer's Fireman stuff right when it came out. And, again, all the fanzines you mentioned, too. It's amazing to mm -hmm. go back and all that. So, so it's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time. And uh, if you ever need anything from us, please uh, don't hesitate to give us a call. Yep. I really appreciate that. It was a real pleasure, guys. All right. Thank you. Have a good evening. All right, good night. Bye-bye.